Real burnout stems from a misalignment between the work that you're putting in and the meaning that you attach to that work. So it's not just from working long hours. It's when the long hours you're working and the sacrifices you're making are no longer in alignment with what you find meaningful, what you find purposeful, uh, to what excites you, uh, to what you're fascinated by, uh, to what aligns with your core values. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Chris Ronzio, founder and CEO of Trainual, and this is Organized Chaos. As always, we're taking a page from a different leader's playbook so you can put it in your own as you build yours. And you just heard from Alan Stein Jr. This episode's all about sustaining your game, both in business and in life. Alan is an acclaimed basketball performance coach, having spent 15 years working with some of the highest performing athletes on the planet. I'm talking Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kobe Bryant, and as a huge basketball fan, I really enjoyed this episode. So five years ago, he pivoted from that experience in basketball to working with high-performing business leaders and teams and how they can utilize some of the same approaches that he saw these world-class athletes using to raise their game and sustain their game. So he has written two books on those topics. Raise Your Game is the first book from 2019. Sustain Your Game came out in 2022. And we dig deep into what it takes to play at a high level in your business. So we talked about managing stress on a daily basis. We talked about how you can deal with the mediocrity or feeling like you're stagnating in the business, what to do about it, and then how to conquer burnout. So all of this is just his great lessons, great stories in basketball translated into how they can impact you in life and in business. There were so many takeaways, so many gems and nuggets that I don't want to spoil it all in this intro, but just think like if, if he was working with Kobe Bryant and asking him the secrets to life and the secrets to performance. If he was coaching a 15 year old Kevin Durant, who's now a multi hundred millionaire, multi gold medalist kind of athlete, what kind of takeaways might he have to share with you? Well, this episode is jam packed with those takeaways. So listen in and hear Alan Stein Jr.'s takes on life, on performance, on business, and a little bit on basketball. Enjoy. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Organize Chaos. I'm your host, Chris Ronzio, and today we have a really interesting guest that I can't wait for you all to meet. His name's Alan Stein Jr., and he's a basketball performance coach. So we're gonna dig into his books, his experience coaching basketball, and all of the lessons that you can apply to your businesses. As you know, I'm a huge basketball fan, so if you follow me online, you're you're just gonna see how glowing I am through this conversation. But Alan, thank you for being here. Oh my goodness, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this since we put it on the schedule and uh, I'm amped for a, a fun conversation for sure. Awesome. Okay, well, let's dig into it. So you've got two books that you've written, Raise Your Game, which came out in 2019, and Sustain Your Game, which is a new book out this year. And both of those stem from your experience as a performance basketball coach. So I'm curious, let's start there. How did you even get into coaching? What is that background that, that started this all? So, so basketball was my first identifiable passion. It was my first love. And I, I fell in love with the game at five years old when my parents signed me up for my first recreation team. And I'm so thankful that here 40 years later, basketball is still a major pillar of my life. And I'm uh, incredibly grateful that I've been able to not only make a living, but build an extraordinary life around something I'm so passionate about. And, you know, for the first portion of my life, 
I was a basketball player, uh, fortunate enough to play at Elon University down in North Carolina. Uh, and while I was at Elon, I started to develop an equal affinity for performance training, for strength and conditioning and nutrition and mindset. And when I graduated from college and the writing was on the wall that I didn't have what it took to be a professional player, I thought, what could be better than marrying my original love of basketball with my newfound love of performance training? So I became a basketball performance coach and I did that for almost 15 years. Uh, I specialized in working at the high school and middle school age level because that's where I felt I could make the biggest impact. But then that led to some work uh, with some pretty renowned players uh, at the Nike Skills Academies and some events for the Jordan Brand Classic. Uh, so I was able to work with guys like Kobe Bryant and Steph Curry and LeBron James and Chris Paul, who I know you have a ball behind you from, um, and loved every minute of that. And then five years ago, I decided to uh, evolve again and, and reinvent myself. Uh, and I, I decided to take all of the lessons that I had learned through the game and through these extraordinary players and apply them to the business world as a keynote speaker and as an author. So I still very much identify with being a coach. Uh, I still use all of the lessons and the disciplines and the routines that I learned through the game, but I now show folks how to apply those to their business and to their lives. So you found a way to make money through basketball, whereas all I do is spend money uh, on basketball, <laughs> you know, not just the, the merchandise or the tickets, but I think it's probably better to be on your side of the fence. But I, I wanna dig into this. So you were a player, you became a coach. Uh, I played as well, only up until till high school. But a lot of times people in business have trouble going from player to coach. So how did you uh, embrace that? How did you first become a coach and understand how to help other people improve? Well, I had it modeled for me from my parents. Now, my parents were not coaches, but my parents were teachers. And, and if you were to ask me to list synonyms to the word coach, a teacher would be one of them for me. Uh, so my mom was a first grade teacher for 30 years. My father was a, started as an elementary educator and then became a middle school principal. And so I always had modeled for me uh, the importance of pouring into others, the, the importance of, of guiding others and lighting other people's candles. Uh, I've always believed that, you know, uh, you know, you don't lose anything when you light someone else's candle. And that's, you know, that was modeled for me at a young age. And I was also incredibly fortunate that, that I had a couple of, of very influential youth coaches um, that I had such a favorable experience playing for them. You know, I had such a positive connotation of what it meant to be a coach. I mean, these were role models in my life, uh, people that I really look up to, people that made the game fun, but people that actually helped me improve and develop and pursue my goal of playing college basketball. So, you know, I've always had an incredibly uh, high reverence and respect for the coaching craft. And, you know, coaching is also kind of a, an amalgam of, of the ability to communicate, the ability to teach, the ability to inspire. And, you know, those were things that, you know, I, I, I guess kind of came naturally to me. You know, I've, I've always been, you know, fairly decent at articulating my feelings and getting a point across. And, and you know, one of the youth coaches, you know, that I was just kind of referencing gave me to what I still consider to this day, the best advice I've ever received. And he said, you need to find something you're passionate about, find something you're naturally pretty good at, and then find where those two things intersect. So find what you love to do, find what you're pretty good at, and find where those two things crisscross. And he said, if you can do that, that's called your strength zone. And the more time you can spend investing in your strength zone, not only will you perform at a higher level, but you'll have a much higher sense of fulfillment and enjoyment as well. And I've stayed true to that intersection my entire life. Now, as I've gotten older, 
I developed new passions and I've developed new skills. So that point of intersection has moved. But, but even now as a keynote speaker and author, I'm still staying true to something I love, which is lighting other people's candles. And I'm still doing something that I'm fairly decent at, which is communication and articulating a message. I love that. And you're right. Coaching is so much about teaching in sports, in business, whatever it is. So I love that you're embracing helping others. Do you have a favorite coach? Is there someone you look up to? You know, very early in my career, uh, I, I read a book by Coach K, the recently retired yeah. Hall of Fame coach. I, I, I know you know that, but just providing context for your listeners called Leading with the Heart. Uh, and I read that in the early 2000s as I was kind of beginning my coaching journey. And, and it really reshaped my perspective on leadership, my perspective on how you build a team and culture, my perspective on how you hold people accountable with love, you know, the importance of discipline. You know, it was a game changer for me. And and I certainly idolized Coach K at the beginning of my career and, you know, continued to grow a respect and reverence for him over time. Uh, but that was definitely someone that I thought was doing it the right way and for the right reasons, uh, had an incredibly high standard. Uh, and I know there's plenty of naysayers to the Duke basketball program, uh, but nobody can argue the results and the, the level of excellence that they've maintained, you know, over his 42 year coaching career. Uh, so that was definitely somebody that I look to uh, try to emulate those qualities. I, I never wanted to be Coach K, uh, which is good because there was, you know, that was already taken. Um, but I certainly wanted to emulate the way he approached his craft uh, and his standard of excellence in everything that he did. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. Great book suggestion. I read 11 Rings by uh, Phil Jackson. And I thought there were so many lessons in that one too. There's this other book, uh, Trillion Dollar Coach. It's about kind of a Silicon Valley business coach, but there's so much we can learn from coaches. And so now we're going to learn a lot from you in, in the rest of this episode. So you touched on being a, a high school basketball coach, but what you didn't mention is you coached guys like Kevin Durant and Victor Oladipo at some of the greats. So were there characteristics that you noticed in those athletes that set them apart from everyone else, even at an early age? Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm glad you bring that up for context. And I, I do appreciate you, you mentioning that because what makes my journey very unique is I've had a peak on either side of the, the curtain. You know, I had a chance to work at two different, very renowned basketball programs here in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, the first of which was Montrose Christian, which is where Kevin Durant graduated from. And the second of which was DeMatha Catholic High School, where Victor Oladipo graduated from. Uh, and, and in my 13 years there, I think we've put over a dozen players that are currently playing in the NBA. So this was in a very, very high level of high school basketball. So I was able to work with the best of the best, but I was able to see the, the peak behind the one side of the curtain of what it took to reach that proverbial mountaintop. You know, for these guys to go from 13, 14, 15-year-old kids with a dream and then actualize that to the point of making the NBA, which was was absolutely their goal. Uh, because I was working with these, you know, renowned high school players, that's what gave me an opportunity to work for the Nike Skills Academies and stuff for Jordan Brand and USA Basketball. And then I got a peek on the other side of the curtain and I got to, to see guys that had already reached the proverbial mountaintop, but what it took for them to not only stay there, but to continue to elevate uh, and refine and, and maintain a high level of excellence. And that was when I got to do events uh, for Kobe and Steve Nash and Chris Paul and Steph Curry and LeBron James. So I've seen both sides, what it takes to get there and what it takes to stay there. And to answer your question, you know, the, the things that it takes to reach that proverbial mountaintop, 
um, are principles of high utility that aren't just true in basketball. They're true in business in every area of life. Uh, and the first of those, I learned this lesson directly from Kobe Bryant the first time I met him in 2007, uh, when he told me that really the secret to his success was never getting bored with the basics and having a strong appreciation and respect for the fundamentals. And, and that's something that was that was a life-changing moment for me, you know, to, to realize that a guy of his stature and his level, you know, arguably the best player on the planet at that time, said that his secret was working towards mastery of the basics and the fundamentals during the unseen hours. So the, the lesson I pull from that is whatever you're trying to be, you know, good at, you know, whether you're trying to be an exceptional podcast host, you're trying to be an exceptional mother or father or doctor or lawyer, the key is getting crystal clear on what the fundamental building blocks are of that craft and working on those relentlessly during the unseen hours. And the beautiful part is you don't have to spend hours on end every day doing the basics. You just need to make a commitment to doing them 15, 20, 30 minutes every single day. But if you do that, the compounding interest effect will be, will be massive. So the, the first is absolutely a respect for the basics. And the second is every high performer I've ever met in basketball or business does a masterful job of blending confidence with humility. Uh, they've earned their confidence by the work they've put in, by the sheer repetitions you know, that they've put in during the unseen hours. So they deserve the right to be confident, but they, they brush that with a humility that allows them to stay open to coaching, to mm -hmm. be open to feedback. It keeps them humble enough to know that no matter how good I am, I can still get better and I have not hit my ceiling yet. And it's that combination um, that is, you know, that, that is certainly a, a commonality amongst all high performers. And I probably have another half dozen if so, but I think those are the two that jump out immediately. So when you're witnessing these guys in high school and their early form before they go pro, it's really just a discipline to the basics, the fundamentals that they keep practicing, keep getting up shots, showing up every day. And that's a lesson I think that applies to all of us in our jobs. Uh, a lot of us think you achieve a certain level of success and you have to stop doing the other things. But, you know, it's it being plugged in and showing up every day and grinding. I think that that separates the true performers. Oh, absolutely. And keep in mind, you know, I'm not saying that you don't graduate to doing more advanced techniques or more advanced, in this case, drills. What I'm saying is you never leave the basics. Yeah. You, you recognize those are the foundation to which the rest of your house is built. So, you know, in the game of basketball, and, and again, I know you know this, but for your listeners, we're talking about things like your footwork and your shooting mechanics. You know, those are things that, you know, Stephen Curry is arguably the greatest shooter to ever play the game. And he still does basic form shooting every single day of his life, like literally standing three feet away from the basket, you know, trying to get a certain number of swishes in a row. I mean, you were talking about someone who is, like I said, will go down in history as the greatest shooter ever. And, and part of his daily routine is doing the exact same form shooting drill that you and I probably started doing when we were in first or second grade. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that's all he does. He certainly will do some more advanced techniques and more challenging, you know, moves and, and shots and so forth, but he never leaves the basics. And, you know, I know in my personal, you know, in my own life from personal experience, anytime I'm not getting the type of outcomes or results that I believe I'm capable of, it's usually because I've unconsciously started to drift away from the basics and I mm. got to tighten the screws and, and refocus the lens and yeah. remind myself to get back to those basics. And it's true in every area of life. I mean, it's true for me as a speaker. It's true for me as a father. It's true for me as being a guest on someone's podcast. You know, there are basic building blocks 
And I want to work towards refining those and work towards mastery of those as consistently as possible. It's funny you mentioned, you know, the basics and those three foot shots. Anytime I go to a game and see the players warming up before the game, like Devin Booker, he has this routine for 20 minutes or something where he's taking these little basic shots, then he backs up and then, you know, everywhere on the court. And, and it's that routine over and over again. That's just the commitment to the basics. So I think that's, that's such a great point. So as you worked with these athletes, people that have had incredible careers, people like LeBron that are coming up on two decades in the league, the ability to sustain performance emerged to you as this, this topic, something that you want to write about in your newest book. So how did that experience in particular start to form the principles for this book? Where'd the idea for the book come from? Basically, I'm always writing about what it is that I'm experiencing in my own life. So in essence, I'm always writing the book that I need to read myself. Uh, I find it both therapeutic and incredibly helpful to research and write on the topics that I need to work on. So when I wrote Raise Your Game, it's because I had just transferred careers. I had just pivoted, pun very much intended, and left the basketball training space to become a keynote speaker. And I was asking myself, you know, what do I need to do? To, to become the best speaker that I'm capable of. So that was the reason for, for researching and writing Raise Your Game. Uh, and then uh, certainly not to imply that I've reached that proverbial mountaintop. I mean, I'll be on the climb my whole life. Um, but after five years in the business, now I'm, I'm looking at longevity. And, and how can I make my speaking career something that if I choose to do it for the next three decades, that that is a viable option. But how do I stay relevant? You know, how do I constantly reinvent myself? How, how do I stay atop of the craft and, and not get to the point where people are like, oh, we've heard this guy before? You know, how can I do that for 20, 30, 40 years? So I started to uncover those types of things, which was the reason for writing Sustain Your Game. And I came to the conclusion that there, there are three things that undermine our ability to not only sustain high performance and excellence, but to sustain enjoyment and fulfillment and that stress, stagnation and burnout. Uh, and those are three things that I have absolutely uh, experienced in my own life to varying degrees. So, you know, I, I want to make sure that, you know, in, in, true, in the truest sense of vulnerability that I'm letting you and your audience know, I'm not coming from a place of mastery with any of this stuff. Um, this is all stuff that I am constantly working on, um, constantly struggling with and challenged by, but I'm very proud of the progress I've made. And I'm very proud of the path that I'm on and, and the stuff that I put in the book. I know that it works because I've already seen that the byproducts of doing these things consistently. Um, but the, this will be a journey that I'll be on for, for the rest of my life. So that was the reason for writing both of those books. And, you know, I'm, I'm already working on my, my third book because I'm, I'm in that stage of my life now. And, you know, it's very similar to you never leave the basics, but you can start working on more advanced things. You know, as I'm writing the third book, I'm still very conscious of trying to both raise and sustain my own game. Like that is, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a finished product to put under museum glass. Like I will be a work in progress my whole life, but I can continually and simultaneously raise my game, sustain my game, and then also start to uncover the things that I'll be working on in the newest book. Well, it sounds like you've got that humility you were talking about that you're constantly working on this and still coachable. I love the idea of writing the book that you need for yourself. I circled that one in my notes and we'll come back to that. I'm going to ask you about the third book too, when we get to the end of this interview, but first let's focus on sustaining your game. So you mentioned stress, stagnation, and burnout. And those are the three parts that the book is broken into, right? No, I was going to say, and what I found, what was interesting about those three uh, uh, traits and qualities was they kind of happen over three different timelines. 
You know, stress is kind of in the moment, what we feel on the day to day. Uh, stagnation is kind of that midterm. You know, it, I can't exactly put a timeline on it, but it's it's something maybe after a few months or maybe a year or two where you, you've reached a certain level of success and you click on the mental cruise control and you just kind of, of toe the line of mediocrity. You know, you don't dip down to hitting rock bottom, but you're also not growing or evolving or feeling fulfilled. It's just kind mm. of that numb middle line. Mm. Uh, and then burnout is something with, that occurs when there is an accumulation of both stress and stagnation. And, you know, burnout, I look at more in the long term, um, you know, something that, that usually takes a couple of years to develop. But one of the most important things to bring up about burnout is burnout can happen at any age. You know, I think a lot of people unconsciously think burnout is something that happens in your 60s and 70s, you know, after you've worked several decades. I first experienced burnout as a basketball player at Elon in college. I, I got burnout on the game of basketball. Um, and then I experienced it again or was approaching it again when I decided to leave the basketball training space to become a keynote speaker. So yeah, burnout is not relegated to your age, but it usually takes a couple years of accumulation to, to actually to rear its ugly head. Yeah. So we're hearing about burnout, I think, more than ever right now, you know, through the pandemic. I feel like I'm seeing headlines and the, the people talking about burnout. And so this is happening, like you said, not just at some stage of life, but for some stage of stress or busyness or something. What do you, what do you think it is that's causing so much burnout right now? Well, well, the research was showing that burnout was reaching an all-time high before the pandemic started, which hmm. is insane because I, I'm of the belief uh, the, the pandemic uh, like threw kerosene on that fire. And I, I actually think burnout is is unfortunately worse today than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and there are a variety of, of reasons for that. You know, what, what I found is um, burnout really comes from two different areas. You know, on, on the surface level, and this is what how I think most people identify with it, it is literally letting yourself grind down and, and emptying your cup where your, your internal battery no longer feels charged, that you no longer prioritize sleep or self-care, you know, working out, uh, you don't prioritize your own self-development and growth, um, and you're just wearing yourself out. You are just logging hour after hour, and you are grinding yourself to a halt. That is a portion of it, and I think that's kind of the, the initial conduit to real burnout. But real burnout stems from a misalignment between the work that you're putting in and the meaning that you attach to that work. So it's not just from working long hours. It's when the long hours you're working and the sacrifices you're making are no longer in alignment with what you find meaningful, what you find purposeful, uh, to what excites you, uh, to what you're fascinated by, uh, to what aligns with your core values. You know, it, it, it stems from when you don't believe the work you're doing is serving a greater good or you're not making a contribution to something bigger than yourself. When all of those things are not happening, that's when you start to feel burnout. Because mm -hmm. we all know somebody that, that can work 60 hours a week still prioritize their self-care and find so much meaning in their work, they're not at risk at burnout, even though they're working long hours. So it's, it's that splintering and that misalignment that's, that's the real culprit. The quote that I wrote down from that part of the book was burnout is the long-term effect of misalignment. You just summarized that for us, but I think it's so brilliantly said because if you have purpose and if you're excited about the work that you're doing, You'll work 60, 80, 100 hours a week because you're so charged up to do that thing. But when you're starting to feel burned out, you got to wonder what's what's the underlying reason why I'm just not excited about this work anymore. 
Absolutely. And that's where you have to, you know, self-awareness, which was the first chapter of Raise Your Game, comes back into play. I mean, you know, you have to be willing um, to reflect and be introspective and ask yourself, you know, why, why don't you find meaning in this work anymore? I mean, assuming you did in the first place, that was what drew you to that job or that industry or that vocation. But, but why are you not finding meaning, meaning in it anymore? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we, we can make minor shifts. You know, not everything has to be the result of like the great resignation where you just have to say, I don't enjoy this anymore. I quit. I'm going to do something different. Uh, maybe if you're working at a traditional company in a traditional role, maybe you just need to have a different role you know, play a different position. You know, you, you've, you've had this one job description and you've done that for years, but you no longer find enjoyment in that or no, it no longer fascinates you or cure, you know, you're not curious about it anymore. So maybe you play a slightly different role. Yeah. You know, that was how I was feeling when, you know, after 15 years in the basketball performance space, you know, I loved working with players. I loved working with coaches. I loved the game of basketball, but I was no longer fascinated by sets and reps and workouts. I was much more drawn to things like leadership and cohesion and accountability, the, the mm. stuff that I do now. So for me, you know, that just wasn't lighting me up anymore. Now it lit me up for 15 years. And for that, I'll be eternally grateful. And I loved every minute that I was in the basketball training space. But, but, you know, this time I had the awareness and I gave myself permission to acknowledge the fact that, you know what, I'm, I'm I don't really feel like going to the gym this afternoon. You know, mm. I don't really feel like, you know, writing up this workout for this player today. And that was a major red flag to me because that was something I loved to do before. And now that I was yeah. noticing that wasn't exciting me anymore, I started to say, okay, what are some pivots that I can make? You know, how can I still use all of these skill sets and mindsets and knowledge and things that I've learned? But can I, can I use them in a different way to relight my fire? So that was why, you know, I, I left being a basketball performance coach and I now kind of consider myself a business performance coach. So, you know, not a whole lot shifted, um, just really the intended audience and the, the method of delivery. So keep that in mind for anyone that's experiencing burnout. Just know, first and foremost, uh, it's okay to not be okay and that you are not alone. You know, there's nothing wrong with you if you're feeling burned out. But see if you can really be introspective and get to the core of what do you believe is causing the burnout and then take a look at some of your options for maybe reinvigorating that love and that passion and that meaning. Great advice. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning to stress because stress sure. is something that can plague people in the short term. And so how would you suggest people could alleviate that day-to-day -day stress in their lives? What should they be thinking about? One of the biggest epiphanal moments I've ever had in my life and one of the most enlightening moments was when I realized, and, and this was through the teaching of a, a gentleman named Eckhart Tolle, who's kind of a modern day philosopher, for lack of a better word. Um, he said something in, in a podcast I was listening to that really resonated with me. And ultimately what he said is, stress is a choice. And that really hit me between the eyes because I was thinking, well, why in the world would anyone choose to be stressed? And on a conscious level, I don't think most people would, but his, his ex explanation of it just really made sense to me. And he said, stress is not caused by outside forces. Stress is not caused by circumstances, by events, uh, by what people say or what people do. Your stress is caused by your resistance to those things, your perspective of those things, and how you choose to internalize them. So when something happens, that in and of itself does not cause stress automatically. It's you fighting against that. That resistance is what creates the stress. So um, the, the way you alleviate stress is by acceptance. 
on some level, a, a synonym to that is to simply surrender and say, what, what's going on in the world is, is what's going on in the world. I have no control over that. But what I do have control over is, is how intentional and thoughtful I am to my response to what's going on. And that response is what will dictate whether you feel stressed or whether you don't. And perfect example is, is the pandemic. You know, I mean, uh, I, I could talk to two people, both well-informed, both incredibly intelligent people. And one of them could say, the pandemic is the worst thing that has ever happened to human, you know, to, to, to humans in history. And the other person could say the pandemic is the best thing that has ever happened to humans, you know, in history. And in theory, they're both right because it's just a matter of their perspective. It's just their vantage point. It's just the biases at which they see the world. Um, so uh, that's when I realized my, you know, sitting in traffic does not inherently cause me stress. It's my desire for things to be different in the moment and for all of these cars to get out of my way and for every light to be green. It's that desire that's creating my stress. And once that clicked with me, I mean, my entire world opened up. And, and, and as I said before, I'm not speaking from a place of mastery. I would never sit here and pretend like I don't ever invite stress into my life or that I always choose a thoughtful and intentional response. But I tell you what, Chris, I have gotten so much better at that. And I look at the world so much differently. You know, uh, years ago, if, if I was running late for a meeting and I had to grab something at Target and the line was long and the cashier was working really slow, I would be so irritated and so frustrated. I would feel my, you know, my heart rate accelerate, my blood pressure go up. And I would literally be thinking, like, why is this happening to me? And now when something like that happens, I think, all right, well, how can I gain from this experience? Well, it's a chance for me to practice patience. And I tell you what, I need all the practice I can get. So yeah, it'd be my preference that the line was shorter and the cashier was faster, but that's not happening and I don't control it. So why punish myself by getting stressed out? You know, they'll ring me up when they ring me up. I'll get to my meeting when I get to my meeting. And, and that doesn't mean that I have a casual approach to life. And that doesn't mean that I'm not respectful of someone's time. Like if, if I say that I'm going to meet you at one, then I want to be early, if not on time. It just means that I don't control this situation and fighting against it is completely futile. So I've learned to just surrender and let it go. And um, last thing I'll say, just so your listeners don't think I, I live in a fantasy land, I am not saying that everything that goes on in the world is to my liking and that everything that goes on in the world is my preference. I'm not even saying that everything that goes on in the world is inherently good. I mean, I, I think we've seen some borderline acts of evil in the United States over the last you know, several weeks and months. What I'm saying is I don't control any of those things. And it's not the universe's job to conspire to make me happy. The world is going to do what the world is going to do, but I keep the keys to the car and how I choose to respond. And that is something I find incredibly liberating and empowering and was an absolute game changer for me. I didn't even want to interrupt you because that was so poetic. So thank you for, for sharing. I, I love that. Uh, but you're right. You know, stress is just how we internalize it. I was watching the We Crashed movie. I don't know if you've seen that series. It was about the, the WeWork story, but it had Anne Hathaway and Jared Leto. So it was a dramatized version of it. And in the first episode, Anne Hathaway has a quote that says, fear is a choice. And it was very much the same framing of what you said when you start to notice the physiological responses. You know, how do you notice that, compartmentalize it and have the patience to say, okay, how do I want to react to this? You know, and, and I think that's, that's the lesson that you're sharing, which I think is so powerful. So sometimes stress can also be a motivator, right? Can you use stress positively? 
Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> one point to what you just said, because what you just said was so insightful. I don't want us to get lost on that. And, and, and what you just said reminds me of something I learned uh, from a buddy of mine who's the mental performance coach for the San Francisco Giants in Major League Baseball. And he said, our emotions are designed to inform us. They're not designed to direct us. And once again, that was another one of those epiphanal moments that hit me right between the eyes. And my pull, what I pull from that is, it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling. You know, I don't believe in resisting feelings, suppressing feelings, ignoring feelings. There is nothing wrong with being angry. There's nothing wrong with being upset, with being frustrated, with being disappointed. We have those emotions for a reason. Um, now, what we can't do is allow those emotions to dictate how we behave, how we show up, how we treat people. So, I mean, this is something I say to my own children all of the time. I have 12-year-old twin sons and a 10-year-old daughter. And I say, look, man, it is okay for you to be upset right now. It is not okay for you to be disrespectful. It's okay for you to be disappointed. It is not okay for you demean, to demean your brother or your sister. Like there's a difference between the two. And when you can learn to allow yourself to feel however you're feeling, but not use it as a, a directive on how you treat people, to me, that's the sign of very high emotional intelligence and, and having emotional regulatory skills, which are vital not only for high performance, but especially in leadership. You know, to, to have the type of leader that is going to consistently show up no matter how they feel. Because as human beings, our, our, our feelings ebb and flow. I mean, you know as well as I do, you can be feeling elated one moment, hear some very tragic news and be down in the dumps 30 seconds later. You can change your entire state in 30 seconds just based on hearing something. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what you can't do is allow that lousy feeling to then spread in, in how you treat people. So, uh, yeah, with, with from an emotional standpoint, that regulation is important. But to your question of can we use stress in a good way? Absolutely. In fact, we need a, a certain level of stress or, or stimuli in our life to keep us sharp. You know, I mean, uh, even going back to, you know, what, what Anne Hathaway said from a fear standpoint, even having some fear in our life is a good thing. You know, if you have no fear, you'll just walk out in the middle of a highway because you're not worried about a car running you over and, and you'll be reckless. Right. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, if you are so afraid of getting hit by a car that you won't even leave your house, now that's paralyzing you. So, so too much fear and no fear, you know, on either end of the spectrum is a problem. Same thing with stress. Having so much stress that you can't cope and you feel overwhelmed but then having no stress where you're just so casual and laissez-faire about everything that, that you don't have any type of ambition or drive to continually evolve and develop, well, that's also a problem. Right. So uh, kind of like the, the the three bears, you want to find that beautiful spot locks. right in the middle. Yeah, you dial Goldie in locks. stress to the right amount so that you can continue making progress. Because I, I do think stress is healthy. You know, when you've got the meetings on the calendar and you say yes to projects and you take on commitments that seem scary, that's what pushes us. But if you take on you know, too much, you may have to dial that back. So it is the right amount. So the, the next part of the book is about stagnation. And I think that this is a part that you know, we hear a lot about stress. We hear a lot about burnout. But what you mentioned earlier is this middle zone of mediocrity where you're just kind of showing up and checking the boxes. I think that's a slump that a lot of people fall into and don't totally recognize. So how do you see the warning signs of that stagnation? Many times stagnation comes from playing the most dangerous game that any of us can play, and that is the comparison game. And uh, it's a game that I 
played for four decades of my life and decided to take myself out of that game a couple of years ago because uh, I wasn't finding it beneficial. And, hmm. you know, stagnation uh, can be a result of that. Now, when you play the comparison game, ultimately there's, there's two things that can happen. One, you can compare yourself to everyone else and feel lousy. You feel unworthy. You feel like everybody's got a better job. Everybody's got a better spouse. Everybody's got more money. Everybody's got, you know, and it makes you feel less than because you, you're comparing yourself to others. Uh, and that's one, one issue. Uh, the other issue, and this can often cause stagnation, is the opposite of that. You, you compare yourself to the guy in the cubicle next to you and go, I'm doing pretty good. Like my life's pretty good, so I don't really need to grow or evolve or, or push any further. I can just put on the mental cruise control because life is pretty good right now. And, yeah. you know, uh, to me, and I'm very, very careful in how I, I choose my words. And uh, for me, there's a difference between being content and being complacent. Uh, I'm very content in my life. I'm incredibly happy with the life that I have. Uh, I've got three wonderful children. I've got a great relationship with my ex-wife. I'm healthy. I'm fit. I get to do work that fills me up and I find meaning in. Like I am content with my life, but I am by no means complacent. You know, I'm not done yet. And each of those areas is as content as I may feel. I'm not complacent in becoming a better father or becoming a better speaker. Um, so there's a difference there. And I, I think it's the complacency that, that, you know, can cause the problems. It's the complacency that causes the stagnation. And the reason it's tricky is usually when somebody hits rock bottom, whether that's in a relationship, that's financially, uh, maybe that's with, with drugs or, or alcohol, they hit this low point. They all of a sudden feel inspired to start making some change because they have hit that rock bottom. Uh, the dangerous part about stagnation is you don't hit a low point. Yeah. It's just this numb feeling. So nothing ever jostles you into making a change unless, and this is one of the keys to it, unless you insulate yourself with people that care enough about you to tell you and just say, Hey, Chris, man, I, I believe in you. I think you're better than what you're showing me right now. I think you've been stagnating, man. And, and I'm telling you this as a friend because I care about you, but I just feel like you've been treading water for these last couple of years. And because I care about you, I just want to bring that to your attention because maybe it was a blind spot. And there have been a few times in my life where I've definitely stagnated and I'm very grateful that I've had people that cared enough to tell me because it was a blind spot. I don't think anyone that's got the mental cruise control on realizes that they flipped that switch. Yeah. They don't know it. And that's why, you know, we, we have to bring it to awareness because you'll never improve something you're unaware of and you will never fix something you're oblivious to. So until you can acknowledge that you are stagnating and aware that you're stagnating, you'll continue to have that mental cruise control on. So let's say you hit a wall and you've got your relationship or your business or your friends that are, you know, intervening and telling you that you seem to be stuck. What's what's the first step you take to kind of get out of that place? Well, I believe to shake things up, you have to change your inputs. I'm a huge believer that your inputs uh, what you read, watch, and listen to, uh, uh, who your friends are, the people you spend most time with, all of the things that are coming into your life dictate your outputs. You know, the, the inputs dictate your mindset, your attitude, your belief system, your, you know. So uh, in order to change the outputs, because that's what's been stagnating, we got to change the inputs, uh, which can mean, you know, uh, maybe there's some people in your life that that aren't adding value and, and helping you improve you know maybe they have more of an apathetic approach and, and you're kind of lugging them around like dead weight and i'm not saying anyone needs to cut anyone out of their life but you can make the conscious choice to spend less time with those people if they're kind of dragging you down uh, then also shake up 
what you're reading, watching, and listening to. You know, uh, pick up a new book or listen to a new podcast or, you know, do something that's going to kind of shake things up. Uh, and this is where, too, uh, you have an opportunity to expand outside of maybe your direct genre or industry. Uh, you have an opportunity to, to read, watch, and listen to stuff that has a different perspective than you have. One of the mistakes most people make is we insulate ourselves in this filter bubble where all we do is associate with and read, watch, and listen to things that we already believe. Mm. And it just, it just we, we increase our bias towards these things. Uh, I find a tremendous amount of value in diversity, especially diversity of thought. Yeah. So I intentionally listen to and read books um, that have a different life perspective than I have. And the beautiful part is um, either one of two things happens. One, it gets me to increase clarity on what I actually believe and will help me strengthen my convictions, which is a good thing, or it gives me new information that I wasn't privy to and actually gets me to see the world differently, to change my mind, to look at things in a different way. <clears throat> and that's also valuable, but you only get that if you step outside of what you're currently believing. So just remember, if you will always keep getting you know, whatever you've been getting, unless you change whatever it is that, that you're subjecting yourself to. Mixing up your inputs. And one of those inputs could, of course, be your book, which I highly recommend sustain your game. So I, I recommend everyone that's listening, go get the full version. You're getting the cliff notes, the preview right here, but the full version, sustain your game. So we covered stress. We covered the stagnation. We covered burnout. And those are obviously topics that we could talk about for a long time. All that goes into the idea of sustaining your game, of being a high performer. Uh, you told a lot of great stories in the book. I'm curious, what, what story stands out to you as just a favorite that you shared? Oh boy, man, there have been so many. I mean, I've just been so fortunate to work with so many different players. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, and I, I think I kind of botched the, the quote a little bit earlier, the actual quote is, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. And, and I'm not the originator of that quote, but that is a life philosophy for me. And I realize that I have been afforded some amazing opportunities to be in some rooms with some incredibly high performers. And, uh, you know, I, I've had an opportunity to see and do things that a lot of people have not had the opportunity to do. And I believe my role uh, as a steward to pay those things forward is, you know, if I've had an opportunity to have a 10 minute conversation with Kobe Bryant or with Coach K, I don't want to keep that to myself. I want to take the what I learned from them and share it with others. And doing so doesn't detract from me in any way. All I'm doing is lighting other people's candles. Yeah. And I feel indebted to do that because so many people have poured into me. So many people have helped me light my candle and have told me stories from rooms that I haven't been able to be in. So yeah, to me, that's what's most important. Um, what, one of the stories, and I think you'll really appreciate this, um, mm -hmm because it has a very practical, uh, applicable lesson for folks. Um, I had an opportunity uh, to work with the men's basketball program at Queens University down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. And I would work with them every year uh, during the Jay Billis Skills Academy. And Jay Billis of ESPN is a really good friend and mentor of mine. And uh, the, the Queens University men's basketball program, just for your listeners that don't follow basketball, is one of the top division two programs in the United States. Uh, over the last decade, they've averaged you know, almost 30 wins per season, and they, they regularly make the Elite Eight and the Final Four. Uh, last season's team put seven players in the pros. Now, not in the NBA, but playing overseas, making a really good living, hmm. which is remarkable for a Division II program. Wow. Uh, and their coach, Bart Lundy, who just recently took a job at a Division I school in Milwaukee, um, did a masterful job of figuring out that there were four key stats that heavily influenced whether or not 
uh, Queens University would would win the basketball game. Uh, and now keep in mind that, and here's another book for folks to add to their reading list, is Simon Sinek's newest book, The Infinite Game. And, and Simon Sinek brilliantly points out that a game like basketball is a finite game. It has a distinct start and a distinct stop. And we have all unanimously agreed around the globe that the team with the most points on the scoreboard when the final buzzer goes off is the winner. Like that is not arbitrary. That is that is who will win the game. Now, business in life is much more evergreen and esoteric. Uh, we, we don't have a definitive start and stop. And, you know, if I were to interview 100 CEOs, uh, certainly there'd be some overlap. But 100 CEOs would not describe winning in business the exact same way. They would all value different things and might view it differently. Um, so the example I'm going to give here in basketball can absolutely be applied uh, to business and life. So back to Coach Lundy. He figured out there were four statistics that influenced whether or not Queens would win. The first was turnover differential. If we can have more possessions than our opponent, it gives us a better chance to win. Second was offensive rebound differential. If we can take more shots than our opponent, gives us a better chance to win. Third were free throws attempted. The free throw in basketball is the highest percentage shot per possession. If we can make more of those than our opponents, gives us a better chance to win. And the fourth characteristic was three-pointers taken. Uh, the three-pointer, as you know, is a massive weapon in college basketball. And if we can take more clean looks from three than our opponent, it gives us a better chance to win. Well, when Queens University comes out on top in those four categories, they win 97% of their games. Hmm. I'm going to say that again because it's pretty profound. If they just do those four things, they win 97% of their games. That means mathematically and statistically, they are almost unbeatable. And all they have to do are those four things. So the rhetorical question I'll ask your beautiful audience is, what do you think Coach Lundy and his staff talk about, reinforce, and emphasize Every workout, every practice, every film session, and before every game. Yeah, it's just those four things. What do you think he uses to design every practice plan, every workout plan, every film breakdown, and every game plan? It's just those four things. Coach Lundy and his staff never had to talk about winning, never had to talk about trophies, banners, uh, or championships. All they had to talk about were those four things because if they did those four things, the winning the banners, the championships, and the trophies would just take care of themselves. And, and the lesson I want folks to pull from that is get crystal clear on what winning looks like to you and then figure out what are a handful of measurable behaviors, habits, or analytics that will directly influence whether or not you win at whatever you're trying to win and just focus on those things. It's about being focused on the process and just let the outcome be a byproduct of that. And that parlays nicely uh, to our, you know, the beginning of our conversation where we're talking about the basics. Like Coach Lundy doesn't have to get super fancy with anything. Let's make sure that we, we are taking care of the ball. Let's make sure we are aggressive on offensive rebounds. Let's make sure we're attacking the basket so we're getting fouled. And let's make sure we make the extra pass to get a teammate an open three. You do those four things, guys, we win. And, uh, you know, I, I use that mindset and that construct for, for everything that I try to achieve in my life. Great advice again. And those four things, you know, it reminds me of another episode we had about strategic planning. And when you've got something laser focused, when you've got those me measurables, those outcomes, and you can design everything else, all the workouts, all the game plans around those things, things just click. You know, it's, it, things just, just come together. And, it, you know, I, it reminds me of this past season that my team, the Phoenix Suns, if they went into the fourth quarter with a lead, 
100% of the time they won that game 50 something times. And, uh, and so they designed their game plan around how to make that happen. It didn't result in a championship, unfortunately, but it was a, it was a good season nonetheless. So I said, I'd come back to this and this is my last question for you. Can you give us a hint at what the third book in the, uh, the trilogy so far will be about? Well, I, I love that you brought up trilogy because there's something about threes that that's, you know, I, I think as human beings, we're in, in internally wired to be attracted to. So yeah, while I never want to force anything, it is hard for me to not wrap my mind around there being a third installment, which of course has to have the word game in it. And at present, I'm kind of compiling some notes and some ideas. And, and at present, I'm kind of thinking something along the lines uh, of either change the game, uh, change your game, or play your game. And, and the really the, the theme of this book will be, you don't have to play by the rules that society is telling you you have to play. You can create your own rules. Mm. You know, I think society wants us to play the comparison game. You know, uh, they, they, that's one of the main reasons people are on social media is to see what everybody else is doing. And then you inherently decide, am I doing better or worse than that person? You know, the retailers want you to play the comparison game because you come to the conclusion that if I buy a nicer car, I will feel better about myself. So I want to invest that money. And, you know, the, it, and, and, and that's a very slippery slope. And I think there's a few other constructs like that that society tells us we have to play. You know, one of them is just the sheer definition of success. You know, I know in my 20s and 30s, I really and truly believe success was correlated to how much money I had in my bank account what type of house I had, what type of car I drove, you know, the young lady on my arm, what she looked like. Like, I thought that's what success meant. And, and at that time, you know, I guess with less life experience and less wisdom, that was my definition. Well, now at 46, uh, I see the world completely differently. Mm. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with desiring those things or having those things, but those things no longer are my North Star and they no longer are what give me a sense of purpose and a sense of self-belief and self-worth. I've learned to detach from those things. So I don't want to play the game that everyone else says we have to play. I want to come up with my own rules, my own definition of success and live my own life accordingly. So uh, at present, and the book will take another year, year and a half to write. Um, that's the direction I think I'm going because that's the stage I'm in in my life. And that's absolutely the book I need to read myself. I was just going to say that. I love that you write the books that you need to read yourself. So we're excited to follow along. I'm excited to follow along with you on your journey. Where can people reach you and find you? Uh, they can go to my primary website, which is allensteinjr.com. I also have a supplemental site, strongerteam.com. Uh, that has information on my books, podcast, of course. I do some exclusive one-on-one -on -one coaching. Uh, I'm very easily found on social media, at Alan Stein Jr. Um, and I take a lot of pride in being both accessible and responsive. So if someone enjoyed this conversation uh, and you want to keep the dialogue going, just shoot me a DM on Instagram or on LinkedIn. I'm very good about getting back to people. And then certainly you can find either book, Raise Your Game or Sustain Your Game uh, on Amazon or Audible or wherever you buy your books. So uh, this was so much fun, man. You do a masterful job. I love your show and, and uh, really appreciate you asking such insightful questions and being such a terrific active listener. So this was very enjoyable. Well, thank you. Alan Stein Jr., amazing author and coach, performance coach. So many good lessons in there, nuggets. I can't wait to record the intro to this one because just I have so many notes. I'm scrolling through them all right now and the quotes that you shared are just incredible. So Thank you again for the time and thank you for lighting thousands of candles with your candle here today. 
Hey, thanks for listening to Organized Chaos. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, or share it with anyone in your network that you think could benefit from this information. For episode show notes, podcast recaps, and tons of other small business news and inspiration, check out the manual. That's trainual.com backslash manual.